Science on Surfaces. Hello there and welcome to this podcast, Science on Surfaces, Tips, Tricks and Tools, with me, Marlene Edvardsson. So today we will talk about recent research related to uh, biological nanoparticles, virus infections and vaccine development. And we'll also talk about how surface analytical tools can be used in this line of research, what pieces of the puzzle that must come together for research to be successful. And if we have time, we'll talk about how the concept of successful research affects the scientific career and the career path of the uh, researcher. So here with me in this call, I have Professor Fredrik Höck, uh, Professor of Nano and Biophysics at the Department of Physics at Chalmers University of Technology. So welcome, Fredrik. Thank you. So how are you today? I'm fine. I'm fine. A little stiff. I've been skiing for five days now. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Yeah, um, it was great. Yeah, so so many things that we could talk about in this conversation. Let's see what we have time for. But uh, um, let's just start with uh, your research. What is it that you do in your research group and what, what is it that you would like to achieve? So the, the development of the research in the group has, has had a clear path if we look back <laughs> on how it all started many, many years ago when I was a PhD student with Ben Kasum and we developed the quartz crystal microbalance. And, uh, but that path is clear only if you look backwards. <clears throat> if, if I try to put myself in 1996 or when it was we published the first paper on the QCM uh, and try to look forward. I couldn't imagine then that uh, that we would end up doing what we do today where the QCM technique is far from the only method that, that we use. Uh, but what our research group do to 90% I would say is the use of surface analytical tools uh, for studies of uh, biointerface processes and the past couple of years we have been very focused on investigations of biological nanoparticles ranging from viruses and how viruses interact with mimics of cell surfaces extracellular vesicles, uh, addressing similar questions, but when it comes to extracellular vesicles, also characterization of, of their properties because they are fairly heterogeneous, which is complicated when it comes to ensemble averaging techniques like surface plasma resonance or QCM. So there we have also worked a lot with uh, high, high resolution microscopy both label-free and, la and label-based, fluorescently label-based um, methods. And that knowledge le has led up to a recent interest in lipid nanoparticles designed for drug delivery purposes. Not that we are working with vaccine development per se, but the lipid nanoparticle formulations we use to share significant similarities with with 
those vaccines that have or seem to have saved many of us through the pandemic that we might hopefully be close to leaving. Mm. Yeah. So that, that's a short, short summary. Yeah. And uh, I know that uh, not only do you have your own research group, but you're also uh, the director of uh, a research center, Formula X. And so how does that relate to the work that you do in your group? Is it overlapping or...? Very much so. So uh, I, I see myself form formally a director, but, but practically a co coordinator of ac activities in an industrial research center, which originates from a call from the Swedish Strategic Research Foundation, SSF, uh, where they, and I like very much this initiative, they, they asked industries to approach academia with questions which they did not uh, work, could, could work on or worked on directly in their research, but where they foresee a need of academic academic research <clears throat> and uh, the ambition was to have yeah, four, four to five or so industrial partners teaming up with academic groups with complementary uh, knowledge to address one such uh, research question. And in Formal X, we have AstraZeneca as the leading industrial partner, uh, Camurus uh, in Lund, Vironova uh, in Stockholm. <clears throat> uh, and we may come back to their specific competences. And then also a small startup from, from Chalmers. Mm. Uh, and the academic groups ranges from medical and biological competence to uh, competence in organic synthesis, um, bioimaging and nanoparticle analytics, uh, bio nanopart biological nanoparticle analytics. And my group represent the last piece of that, that cake. And so I have a small activity in the center, mm. but it is much broader than, than my share, of course. Mm. And so you mentioned that in your group, you're not working with vaccine development as such, but something related, I think you said. Uh, so what is it that you would like to achieve with the work that you do in your group? Long term, or yeah, it's a it's a very difficult question. So uh, it, it's always easier to to answer such questions trying to be a little bit more specific. So I would like to exemplify. I think okay. these uh, vaccines, the mRNA vaccines that that have been launched successfully, uh, are based on a type of lipid nanoparticle formulation which encapsulates the mRNA. But the truth is that the efficiency of the actual mRNA delivery all the way into the cell where the mRNA is converted into uh, the protein, in the case of vaccine, the spike protein to trigger the immune response, is very, very inefficient. It's on the order of one to two percent of the mRNA injected, it actually 
generating the the protein that, mm -hmm. that uh, is intended for the immune system to to identify to to develop antibody response and a T cell uh, response. If we could increase that efficiency of delivery, and here I'm not sure how much we need to <laughs> increase that, but let's say 10%, to 10% from a factor of 10 or something like that, uh, we could reduce the dose. In the case of vaccines, that is less of a problem because the high dose also triggers the, uh, an immune reaction, which is very helpful when it comes to vaccines. So the low efficiency isn't so, so much of a problem and the RNA is also fulfilling the purpose of actually triggering immune response. But if we would like to use this kind of, uh, uh, th this kind of principle to, to treat other diseases, diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, and so forth. We need a, uh, we need to increase the efficiency because we cannot stand having the type of reactions that, that we have uh, when we are injected with a vaccine if we have to receive the medication once, uh, once a week or once a month. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that is... Um, um, that is not an unrealistic, <laughs> unrealistic goal, and there is a lot of efforts into that. So, and and the critical, or one of, the, or, or let's say there are two critical components <clears throat> when it comes to the, the the uptake of lipid nanoparticles into the cells. So three maybe, many more, but let's say those three that that we are working on is what happens to the lipid nanoparticle once it is injected and come in contact with serum. Then protein, protein and biomolecules in, in serum and blood coat the lipid nanoparticle. So that is a surface reaction, right? And we, we are experts in looking at surface reactions. And that process dictates the efficiency by which the lipid nanoparticles are taken up by cells. And also, to some extent, which cells that that they are taken up by. Mm. So is it uh, some sort of uh, corona that is yeah, forming? Yeah, oh. a, pr a protein corona. Okay. And, and the composition of that protein corona, this is not as it was when, when we did our QCM measurements together, Molly, that we used only one protein <laughs> and inspected the rate of binding and release. This It's thousands of different proteins. And that means that each lipid nanoparticle will have a a coron pro protein coronation with different composition. They share similarities, of course, but uh, but certain proteins that bind are crucial for the uptake because they are recognized by receptors at the cell surface. And and therefore, the time evolution of the protein coronation on, of this lipid nanoparticles is, is one process <clears throat> uh, that is... Uh, that we are looking into. The other is what structural changes the protein coronation cause to the lipid nanoparticle, and in particular the mRNA inside the lipid nanoparticles. Because the actual lipid structure is crucial for the next event, which occurs once the lipid nanoparticle has been taken up by a cell, which uh, is 
is, is made through endocytosis. And endocytosis, I try to understand that without being a biologist, that's the cell's uh, digestion system. Like, like when we eat food, we, <laughs> we digest a lot, take care of, uh, uh, of what is useful to us and get rid of the rest. And each cells have the same principle and this endosome endosomal system fulfills that purpose and and the and what they primarily do is that they digest the lip that they digest what is taken up there is an enzymatic machinery there is a significant drop in the ph in the endosome and uh, and that will of course harm the mrna mm -hmm. and therefore one need to formulate the lipid nanoparticles such that they, when they early on in the endosome, they undergo some kind of physical chemical change that leads to a fusion with the endosomal membrane. So this is not the outer cell membrane. The outer cell membrane is responsible for the uptake. Then the endosomal membrane and the interaction between the lipid nanoparticle and the endosomal membrane is responsible for the actual release of the mRNA. So is that a membrane in the cell? It's, the it's a membrane in an organelle in the cell uh -huh, called, okay. called the endosome. So, so all, we, we have lots of organelles in cells and they are all, all encapsulated by a membrane. Uh, and we know that that process can be efficient because that's how a virus infects us, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we, we need to understand, uh, get clues from how virus are doing that in order to uh, to formulate this lipid nanoparticle such that that occur. Now, the trick that is used is not directly, as far as I'm aware, uh, uh, inspired by how how viruses are, are doing. I, I'm not aware of a virus that that are using this trick at least. Then, uh, if 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 I'm wrong, I, I guess one can just comment on. <laughs> what we discuss here and, yeah. and initiate the discussion. But the lipid nanoparticles, they contain what is called an ionizable lipids. And these ionizable lipids are not present naturally in, in viruses. They, they use other pH-induced triggers and, and pro protein-based uh, uh, systems instead for, for this delivery to occur. But as I mentioned, in the endosome, while the pH is near neutral outside a cell and in the cytosol of a cell, in the endosome, the pH gradually drops from 7.4 all the way down to 4.5. And as the pH drops, you know, you have got a lot of hydrogen ions and they pr can protonate ionizable groups. So one critical component in the lipid nanoparticle is, the, is a, an ionizable lipid. And this ionizable lipid becomes positively charged as the pH drops and the endosomal membrane is negatively charged. And that leads to an association between the lipid nanoparticle and the endosomal membrane <clears throat> and even fusion between these membranes. And once fusion occurs, there is an escape of mRNA or can be an escape of mRNA across the endosomal membrane. And and that there we have another process where 
surfaces are involved. It's the surface of the lipid nanoparticle and the surface on the endosomal membrane. So then with our surface analytical tools, we, we generate mimics uh, of the endosomal membrane and uh, investigate how the P, how pH influences the interaction between lipid nanoparticles and, mm -hmm. and the endosome. Uh, yes. and, and, and that's the third component. And the second component is what structural changes are, are involved in the lipid nanoparticle as protein, protein binds and when the pH drops. Those structural changes are harder to inspect with surface analytical tools, at least, at least the ones that we use, although there are certain possibilities with neutron reflectometry, which is a, is a method we are at least looking into now to see whether it can help, help mm -hmm. us. Somewhat. So, so uh, if you manage then to deliver the uh, the lipid nanoparticle into the cell with, uh, and then if you have this ionizable lipid that you called it, have, do, do you then protect the the cargo, so to say, from being ruined? Is that? Yeah, the the, the lipid nanoparticle formulation. It's it is formulated to protect the cargo. Oh. all the way to the critical endosomal escape event. Yeah. So these lipid nanoparticles are made actually at low pH, where the ionizable lipid is positively charged. Mm -hmm. And then they associate in a microfluidic based mm -hmm. fabrication process with the mRNA, which is negatively charged. Mm -hmm. And then there are protective lipids, cholesterol and pegylated lipids and some conventional natural mm -hmm. lipids as well. Mm. And, and 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 they spontaneously form these lipid nanoparticles where the cargo is protected, preferably all the way to the critical escape event. But mm. but this is a complex process, and as I said, the efficiency is not not very high. Mm. The efficiency of viruses is also not hundred percent. Not each virus that 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 interact with the cell is taken up. So so, um, but but it is uh, likely to be higher than than than, than we have so far uh, reached. And when I say we, it is really not we who develop these lipid nanoparticles. We some, certainly have have learned <laughs> how they are made through the collaborators that we have in Formal X. <laughs> Uh, and, and much of this is common knowledge, but of course there is a lot of new knowledge that is generated that is not yet public, neither for us or for for anyone else, because this is this is now a very very hot topic mm. uh, where we contribute, mm. try to contribute fundamental insights that potentially or hopefully could could aid the further development of of this uh, mm. this delivery concept. Yeah. And so, I mean, of course, it's like you mentioned, we're currently in this ongoing pandemic and this is a very hot and relevant topic, irrespective of if we're in a pandemic or not. Uh, diseases, of course, come and go. And, yeah, we, uh, we, we started this work before <laughs> the mm, pandemic, yeah. so four or five years before. Al already then people were interested or, or pharmaceutical companies were interested in this concept of mRNA delivery, of course. Yeah. yeah. And so, of course, uh, I mean, success 
is, I mean, we're all interested in, in such research to be successful. And uh, you've, you've touched upon a few, you know, key components for, for this sort of to work out. But I'm thinking for this project and maybe research in general, what are the key components for research to be successful, whatever we mean with successful. Um, but I'm thinking, like you mentioned, the uh, you need some tools, for example, you need funding people. So what are your thoughts on, on like the key components of successful or for research to be successful? So, again, a, a, a quite hard question to answer and it's always easiest to look at oneself and, and to which extent success have been accomplished and also situations when it has not been successful because there are a lot of failures on, on the way as well. But to me, and, and then again, I think this is a, is, is the, the way the university works, there, there is not one answer. That, that applies to everyone. It is very, very individual. So I, I think it is very, very important to get to know yourself <laughs> and um, define what success is for you. Uh, and, and hopefully... That's not easy. <laughs> no, no, that's not easy. Yeah. And hopefully success for you is sufficient to let you stay in research and, and the scientific community if that is your ambition and, and your goal. And, um, and me personally, for me, it was always extremely important for me to work with people who knew things better than me. Uh, and, and being guided by those persons uh, very specifically, I would say. Not so that they solved my problems. It, we, we, I, I really have tried to identify scientific skills from the day that I, that I started to work with younger researchers. Uh, skills that complemented my own and, and so that the outcome was uh, yeah at, at least the ambition was that this was a feeling of a joint the joint achievement mm -hmm. uh, none the least when it comes to the actual inventive step in in the projects that, that we often afterwards had to go back and ask ourselves who, who actually came up with this or that idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and very, very often, more often than not, it, it was not me. Uh, so it was generated in discussions and then someone came, came up with, with a solution that led, led, led the work forward and, uh, and and often measured in a publication. And, and that, that also, and then combining more risky project with less risky projects. And, and then also 
the identification of a topic mm. that fascinated you, say, you. When you say risky and less risky, what do you mean then? Like risk of failure? Or yeah, yeah. A, a, a balance between predictable and non-predictable. Mm. Uh, so there are certain certain things that that with a higher degree of, of certainty will will generate the type of results that, that you know are required in order to uh, in order to draw a scientific conclusion that has a certain value. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I, I, uh, just when you asked that question, I was you said to say I something. think yeah, 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 selecting yeah, the topic a topic that 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 is in, interesting. So so you know a little bit about my history with the QCM. <laughs> Uh, and already when that started, I had a fascination in photosynthesis. I just thought it was a fascinating process, which I wished to understand. And we were thinking of whether we could use the QCM to uh, to probe lipid membranes containing uh, photosynthetic membrane proteins at least that 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 was one idea that we had somewhere and the day when in the lab the first lipid bilayer was formed on the qcm and we could see that formation process uh, even though it was not me measuring it i, I really felt that uh, that this isn't this isn't yeah this, this opens up now an opportunity with a fairly new technique inspecting both the process and 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 the surface modification that that represent the mimic of of a component of a cell that is crucial I, I, I realized that I, I I would remain interested not only in the technique that we were developing but also I would have the opportunity to use that technique to ask questions about one of the most fascinating materials that that evolution has provided. Mm. Did you find the answer to the photosynthesis, by the way? <laughs> that remains. Yeah, that, 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 no, we haven't, we haven't worked with photosynthesis <laughs> since then. No. Uh, um, and, and, but that, that, that was just a catalyst, I would say, mm. a catalyst into this field of biophysics. Mm. But but the lipid membrane has remained uh, 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 and remains uh, uh, extremely fascinating mm. to me. And also that compared with, I mean, biology is so tremendously complicated, but the lipid membrane, a cell contains 300 to 400 or so different types of lipids. Oh, wow. Yeah, maybe it is a bit less, but but there is a lot, depending a little bit on how you define different lipids, whether it is just the head group or the tail. And and there is not, that there are no genes coding directly for the lipids, right? They are coding for the proteins. Then the proteins uh, are there as enzymes to direct the uh, synthesis of, of the lipids. Uh, and And still the combinatorial possibilities and the role these lipids plays to to control how membrane protein function and how the 
cell is communicating with the outside and also organelles and in this case the um, the endosomal escape that that is utilized by viruses when they infect and which is now utilized for drug uh, delivery purposes it's it's just truly fascinating and and and, and also that these mimics that we make, we are well aware and sometimes criticized for how simple our mimics are compared with how complex a cell membrane is. Mm, yeah, I was going to ask, like, how, how similar are they to reality, the mimics that you make? Yeah, not, not, very, not very similar very reductionistic mm. uh, in a sense but I think many of the uh, uh, many of the physical principles uh, like domain formation and, and the fusion event and so forth are still fairly representative uh, uh, and and I think a major limitation, and, and we have a, a conference, a biannual conference, which is called Tethered Membranes, which uh, was initiated by Wolfgang Knoll maybe 20, maybe even 30 years ago, where the ambition is to share research, research progress on supported membrane, on the use of supported membrane for various applications. But it is called Tethered Membranes because we have all, all, always felt that one of the major limitations with the supported membrane form, formed on glass, which is one of the few materials that they form on, which I also find fascinating since silicon dioxide is so common in nature and, and somehow the first cell emerged. Could, could, could there be a connection there? Uh, but silicon dioxide is a solid surface, right? And the cell, neither the organelles nor the outer cell membrane is, is on a solid surface. So there has been significant effort uh, devoted to finding means to separate the distance between the solid surface and, and the membrane. Uh, and, and I think once tricks in that direction, and there are more and more such solutions today, that combined with because that hinders the mobility of lipids, domain formation, and, and so forth, which, which is one ob obstacle when it comes to translating our observations to the real world. But once those principles starts to be more and more established, we will also be able to increase the complexity. And a popular route today is to do hybrid membranes. Mm -hmm. You take a cell membrane, and mix that with a fraction of those artificial or, or not artificial, but synthetic lipids that promotes bilayer formation on planar surfaces. And then at least the complexity has, has been uh, achieved that mimics the complexity of a cell membrane. And, and, and that, that direction looks promising, but what is not sustained yet is to preserve the, um, what is it called, 
preserve the the difference in the uh, ah, here here <laughs> you know what the inner leaflet and the outer leaflet uh, oh. asy the asymmetry <laughs> yeah 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 yes, yes. <laughs> the asymmetry of the membrane mm. uh, because that 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 doesn't survive uh, that that process okay um, when it comes to planar membranes but you can make vesicles and vesicles is is uh, and there the asymmetry is more preserved and vesicles is is, is are, are also in interesting from mm. that perspective but then it is sometimes a little bit harder to uh, to to use the tools the way we we the surface mm. analytical tools the way mm. you can on a planar surface. So uh, you mentioned QCMD, but what other tools do you use for this work? So, so um, the the leading tools that we use is uh, uh, QCM and surface plasma resonance. But we are not using the conventional biocore surface plasma resonance, but rather spectroscopic surface plasma resonance operating at more than one wavelength. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason for that is that the different wavelengths, with different wavelengths, you generate uh, uh, evanescent fields that extends more or less far out in the solution from 100 nanometer to, to 200, 300 nanometer, depending on the wavelength. Um, it is not so crucial if you look at really thin films, but if you look, for instance, on tethered vesicles on, on the surface, uh, uh, the, the response is different depending on the, the wavelengths that yeah. you operate with. And then you can draw conclusions on, uh, or, or you can make thickness determinations fa fairly accurate and look so at structural changes and things. How like. big uh, vesicles can you work with? So we typically use vesicles between 50 and 200 nanometer. Mm. Uh, one, once you go above that, there are two complications. They are hard to make monodisperse, and also you don't benefit so much from from operating with different evanescent fields because you mm. just see the bottom part of them, so to speak. So mm. you, you cannot make you cannot make use of that. Mm. So, so what information is it that you pull from these measurements with the spectroscopic SPR? Uh, it is uh, primarily thickness determinations and changes in the film thickness. Oh, okay. uh, so in addition to the mass, we can also mm. see where the protein binding on a lipid on a particle or a vesicle is leading to uh, contraction of the vesicle. Mm. Uh, and, and and the reason for that interest is, of course, that that signals structural changes. And if there is something QCM is good at, it is to see that there is a structural change. And and for rigid system, one one can fairly accurately, directly from a QCM response, tell what is going on. But for non-rigid viscoelastic systems, uh, it is very very helpful to complement that with, for instance, a thickness thickness determination. So combined, the, the two provides uh, the type of analytical input you need in order to, to strengthen your conclusions. But uh, I also mentioned 
uh, virus particles and extracellular vesicles. I don't know if I mentioned extracellular vesicles, but they are not so different from viruses, but they communicate genetic information. At least they are believed to communicate genetic information between cells in a way not so different from how viruses infect, but, but not for the purpose of causing disease. They, they are rather functional vehicles. But they also are very heterogeneous. And one drawback, both with SBR and QCM, is that they are ensemble averaging methods. So, so that there is a, um, yeah, there is an emerging realization of the importance of single nanoparticle resolution techniques. So we are working also with surface-based microscopy, either total internal reflection microscopy or uh, scattering, light scattering-based microscopy, waveguide-based scattering microscopy. And then there is another very interesting technique that we don't yet have in the lab, but is interferometric scattering microscopy, iSCAT with tremendous sensitivity where, where one can look at individual nanoparticles. And that, that is the third technique that we use where one can also sometimes deduce structural changes and relate that to what we see with SBR and what we see with, with QCF. So mm -hmm. I would say th those are our key workhorses. Mm -hmm. These extracellular uh, vesicles, where do they fit? Or is that in a completely different project? No, they, they are also included in, in for instance, uh, Formula X that I mentioned. Because the dream delivery vehicle would be if I could take your, if, if, if you need to be cured for, for I, I hope, never <laughs> that will be needed. But <laughs> there is a high risk that we will have to be cured for something the older we get, right? So. Yeah. Uh, if, if I could take your extracellular vesicles, a subset of your extracellular vesicles, and load them mm -hmm. with the, for instance, RNA or, or, or whatever that, that you are in need of, uh, we, can, we can take cells from you, for, perhaps, generate extracellular vesicles from them. Uh, while loading them, and and then uh, the response from your body will uh, will be very mild, right? Because you mm. are just just receiving what has been added to mm. to to your own extracellular vesicles, and the purpose of some of them is really to to reach certain organs and certain cells in in your body. So uh, and that that is a huge research field today. Mm -hmm. uh, with many companies investing tremendous amount of, of money in in figuring out how, how, how to make make this possible not necessarily going all the way to to making use of our own extracellular vesicles that the, the concept in itself long before we we had that opportunity holds promise as an alternative to these artificial lipid nanoparticles that are mm. uh, that 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 are today. But how are they different an extracellular vesicle if not made from the individual's sort of lipids, so to say? How is that different from a, a lipid nanoparticle? I'm thinking that they are very similar. Yeah, but the the lipid nanoparticle has a 
complexity which is similar to how complex we can make a lipid bilayer when we form it on a planar glass mm. surface. We can add maybe four components. And that is what the lipid nanoparticle contains, four, mm -hmm. four different lipids. Okay, An yeah. extracellular vesicle has the complexity of the cell membrane. Yeah, okay. Uh, because it, it emerges mm. from, from this, they, they are generated by the cells, so they are far, far more complex and, mm. and therefore they uh, potentially could be much more efficient in doing what they are proposed to do. But you need to understand the extracellular vesicle or exosome biology in order to know or to engineer them for for a desired purpose, but we, we are not in that business of, of, of engineering, but our tools can be used to analyze these extracellular vesicles from a functional perspective. For mm. instance, if they are engineered with a, uh, uh, with a ligand, ligand mm. to reach a certain cell type, let's say, we put a small antibody on, on the surface of an extracellular vesicles. And the purpose of that antibody is to identify a tumor cell, for instance. Uh, we, we can, with our surface analytical tools, tell whether that ligand is present, how many ligands there are per extracellular vesicles, and, and which fraction of the extracellular vesicles were successfully engineered with. Uh, at least theoretically, it is not so easy in practice <laughs> always <laughs> because these are tough experiments. Mm -hmm. but, but, but so, so it's more of a research proposal where mm -hmm. where we where we um, or ongoing research where where our intention is to answer these questions because theoretically, with the resolution that we have today and the combination of our uh, surface analytical tools. These are questions that, that are not um, unfeasible. Un mm -hmm. They are feasible, but, but it is hard work, of course. So uh, what else would be needed for this to be successful? I mean, can you ever tell that it was successful? Perhaps you just move from result to result, or will you ever reach sort of a goal? And what would be required to reach the goal? Hard questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th this is another very, very hard question. So we reached a goal about a year ago. Uh, and that popped up towards the end of my PhD, when Mikael Rudal, Ben Kasumo and I were discussing the fact that the QCM is probing water uh, and, and we have those uh, lines in our papers that we believe that the difference between the QCM response and the SPR response is due to the coupled water. <laughs> and we combined the two and thought that we proved that it was coupled water. <laughs> but every time we there was water coupled the dissipation was high. I mean, these are now very specific, mm. but some of mm. the listeners mm. might 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 have a QCM. <laughs> yeah, most surely, yes. Yeah, and uh, and it could happen that I woke up 
in the night after a dream when someone <laughs> declared that it was not coupled water. <laughs> and and of course, you, you don't know for sure uh, un, until it is uh, verified. And uh, so that, that has been a question that has followed me for 30 years or, or something like that. Um, and then not long ago, we figured out the way, at least so we think, where one with QCM measurements alone can quantify the amount of coupled water between at least rigid nanoparticles bound, bound on the surface. The situation becomes a little bit more complicated when they are viscoelastic. And that I hope is, is a line of research for, for others and, and us to continue on. Uh, but, but but that was a moment of, I would say, success, at least for me. Uh, and I think also helpful for the community in the sense that, uh, that the suggestion that we have presented in this paper can be tested by others to, to be confirmed because it is not until it has been evaluate by others that uh, that it is uh, certainly confirmed but but to me that that was a that that was a moment of success where I where I felt that we we solved a long-standing problem that has followed me for for so many years did the nightmares stop I just <laughs> yeah Maybe. <laughs> at, at, least, at least that type of nightmare. But you know, then come a paper where someone is... Yeah. is, is but that is science, right? Mm. So we, we are convinced that our data is correct. Uh, we are certain that theoretically what we say makes sense. Mm. Uh, but, but I'm sure that uh, there are limitations to the applicability of, the, of this concept. Uh, but uh, it, it, it is a, a, an interesting contribution to, to an, an open question. Mm. And, and that, that, I think, is, is one example. But it also exemplifies how solving one piece of this puzzle generates an approach which perhaps may make it possible to answer another question, which is also a feeling or an intuition I have, and that is that the damping induced when a nanoparticle binds to a surface relates to the number of contact points. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the number of contact points between a biological nanoparticle and a surface, <coughs> in particular a cell surface, is crucial for whether it will be taken up, whether the interaction will be sufficiently hard mm -hmm. for, for the membrane to bend and be taken up, or for fusion to occur. Mm -hmm. and, and and perhaps, um, perhaps there is room for, for new discoveries in that direction, thank, thanks to uh, our contribution in that work. Um, other uh, type of success, to me, success is, I, I feel, I, I feel very much that success relates to the success of my group members, both when they accomplish 
uh, or generate scientific results in the group, but also when they leave the group and, and take on their future careers. And I've had very many PhD students now and they are doing many different things. Uh, but I think they all bring with them something from from the period they have have had in in the group, and I think that that is how I would like the day when I retire to view <laughs> to view whether this career was successful or not. Not in terms of number of papers or number of citations, but rather how how the training and environment that we had led to led to a continuation of, um, of, of science outside, mm -hmm. o outside my group. Mm -hmm. uh, and then automatically, of course, another success for me personally was the day when I got my first permanent position at the university, because I remember that day very well, because I realized that I will most likely for the rest of my life be able to to work with something I like very much. <clears throat> uh, and um, Sounds like a fantastic feeling. Yeah, it was, it was. Now this life is not only fantastic, but that, that comes with all types of occupations. Mm. So uh, it's, it's just as it is, right? <laughs> but, but, uh, but I think one reason for why being so happy was, uh, was that I would would have the chance to work with younger scientists and 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 and, and try try helping to train them, and I, and I also you asked something uh, earlier regarding career or or or, or something like that, uh, uh, and yeah. no choices. No, I, or maybe it was in the notes that we shared before this discussion. Uh, so the reason for me for choosing a scientific path, given all the uncertainties it has, because you never know whether you will sufficiently early on in your career, I would say, gain the uh, impact needed to foster an academic career. <clears throat> but I, I wasn't so worried because I knew that I, enjoy teaching and teaching is an important duty we have at the university and, and and to me that has always been central so therefore I felt that I, I can always balance research and teaching uh, um, and in that way I most likely will enjoy enjoy this occupation mm. and so I do very much. Mm. Oh, I, I mean, I have so many questions. I think we need to start to start to wrap up. Uh, but I was curious to know what's uh, what's next for you and your research group. I mean, what's what you're working on or what you're striving for in the sort of near future? Do you have any particular goals or anything like that, or any challenges that you're trying to solve now? Yeah, the, <clears throat> the uh, mo most recently we have developed um, 
the a scattering based um, uh, microscopy, scattering based waveguide microscopy. You've developed this. You developed this in. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not develop it. It's in your group. Or... <laughs> in my group. Yeah. yeah. I see, yeah. It was a very talented postdoc uh, mm. who, who still is uh, is in the group as a research engineer now, and he has been working with a few uh, PhD students throughout the years. And we have actually started a small company like we did with um, uh, with Cusens many years ago, and. And, and there we can inspect in a label-free manner individual nanoparticle and how protein binds to them. And a very concrete goal there is to further improve the uh, sensitivity. We must not improve it by a lot, but we, we dream of being able to see individual proteins binding to an individual lipid nanoparticle. But not long before that, we also want to understand the uh, uh, the theory behind the signal and the changes we observe, much in the same way as we uh, did with the QCM uh, in in the early days, we we had to interpret the signals. Uh, so th that that is a very concrete goal that we have, and and then of course using this technique for characterization of lipid nanoparticle extracellular vesicles uh, because there is a lack of single nanoparticle tools in, in that area which provides sufficient quantitative information and, and that is important in standardization of a new type, new type of uh, drug delivery vehicles and so forth. So to, to, to contribute to the analytical arsenal as, as we once did but now in another uh, area that 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 is one goal, and from a from a more um, scientific perspective, I have become very 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 interested in endosomal escape, and it's an interesting area to be interested in because so many are interested in it. So there is a community, and it branches from biologists to uh, analytical. Um, to, to those of us working more in analytics, bioanalytics. And I think that there is room for increasing the communication between uh, between these branches of, of, uh, of, of science. Um, and, and, and another thing I must say also with respect to the fact that we, we start a small company on this um, uh, on, on this is that for me and success my scientific success goes hand in hand with the success of QSENS and BioLean Scientific in the sense that was it, would would Bengt not have been so so uh, uh, so involved in in and Mikkel as well in, in starting QSENS, the research we did back then would not have been exposed mm. the way it became thanks to the fact that others started to, to use the device. And I think that that is um, something we who work with method development need to be aware of, that in order for our 
techniques to uh, to become spread and our science scientific discoveries known, we also need to make those methods available to the scientific community. Um, because these companies are not started for to, to generate a private income. That is not the prime driving force. It is rather um, a consequence of how how, how the Swedish system, when it comes to to startups from universities, is arranged, yeah. uh, and um, I very much enjoyed to see the, the PhD program that that I had become realized in in a device that that was spread around the world, and and for my students to experience the same would of course be fantastic, but it is very 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 challenging. But that is an additional driving force for us. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that we have to stop there. Time flies. So many interesting topics that we touched on and I feel like there is uh, so much more that we could uh, talk about relating to life and science, um, being strategic in terms of your career path, creativity, and so on and so on. So maybe at some point we could continue the discussion in another episode. But uh, yeah, fantastic. So uh, to all our listeners, I would like to say thank you for listening to this episode with me, Marlene Edvardsson and Fredrik Höck uh, from Thomas University of Technology. And I also would like to take the opportunity to mention to those of you who are listening or watching that if you're interested in surface science or related topics, you should check out our blog, the Surface Science blog. Thank you. <laughs>